When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. There would be no Dancing in the Dark for many Bruce Springsteen fans. The first leg of his 2009 tour was due to end with two homecoming shows in his native New Jersey at the Meadowlands Arena in East Rutherford. But a nasty shock awaited people as they logged on to buy tickets. Average prices of $280. This was not a case of a rock star looking to exploit his devotees. The original sale price was between $65 and $95. Instead, fans found they were automatically redirected to a secondary resale site where the cost had been bumped up. For one particular fan, enough was enough. Congressman Bill Pascrell, whose district included the arena, introduced a bill that would increase transparency in the ticketing industry. The Better Oversight of Secondary Sales and Accountability in Concert Ticketing Act was dedicated to New Jersey's favourite son. It's an acronym. The Boss Act. Exorbitant ticket prices haven't gone away, but despite Pasquale's many attempts, the Boss Act has never been passed. It is, though, a fine example of the niche art of naming congressional bills. Many legislators also followed the acronym route. There's been the Dream Act, a number of Safe Acts, and even the Apple Juice Act. Some are eye-catching, such as 1997's Stark Naked Act, which was actually about medical bills, or a name it's tough to argue with, like the No Child Left Behind Act. The latest big bill to pass the Senate has a similarly artful name. The Inflation Reduction Act won't do much to combat inflation, at least in the near term. But in an era of soaring prices, the name makes it an easy sell. I'm John Priddo, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how big a deal is the Inflation Reduction Act? Democrats have finally passed their climate, tax and healthcare legislation through the Senate. Although the Inflation Reduction Act is much smaller in scope than its forebear, Build Back Better, it still represents a legislative victory for the party. Chuck Schumer and his colleagues are toasting their successful outmaneuvering of the GOP. But how will the bill affect carbon emissions, prescription drug prices and the deficit? And will it make any difference to Democrats' chances in the midterms and to Joe Biden's dire poll numbers. Joining me this week to chew over what's in the Inflation Reduction Act and whether voters will notice it are Idris Kaloun and Charlotte Howard. Charlotte, we've been talking forever on this podcast about the Senate's apparent inability to pass serious climate legislation 
and then you go away on holiday for a week and suddenly it happens. Is this causation? Is this correlation? People are asking questions. I actually spent much of my holiday with Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer ironing out the details of the bills. So you heard it here first. (laughs) I am excited to talk more about the climate provisions of the IRA. The other big news I was struck by, of course, was the FBI's raid of Mar-a-Lago. What's definitely clear is that it plays directly into Donald Trump's narrative that there's some deep state that's out to get him and it helps give Republicans to t- something to talk about that's not this huge achievement by Democrats on Capitol Hill. Idris, how are things with you? What's going on your end? Not too much. I'm trying to think about the future of the Republican Party, which, um, you know, the Trump raid plays into. There is one thing, which is that, as we all remember from the Hillary Clinton campaign, Republicans are nothing if not sticklers for uh, adherence to proper handling of classified material. So I'm sure that they will all realize very soon that Donald Trump uh, should be disqualified from ever holding public office. And uh, that'll be that. No doubt. That's how it's going to go down. Okay, we are recording this podcast before the House meets to vote on the Inflation Reduction Act, the RA, and we're working on the basis that they will pass it. Charlotte, You can divide the sort of policy in the IRA into three buckets, I think. We'll talk about the healthcare and tax elements shortly, but first we wanted to focus on the climate provisions. Charlotte, you've been speaking to our colleague Vijay Vaitheswaran. Yes, Vijay is our global energy and climate innovation editor, and I used to cover energy. So I was looking forward to chatting with him about how big a deal this Inflation Reduction Act is for the fight against climate change. In a Congress that's as gridlocked as the current one is with an opposition party as hostile to climate action as the Republicans are, getting anything at all passed is a miracle. And uh, I think broadly speaking, that's right. If you look at this from a a political perspective, this is a huge win on climate when absolutely nothing was expected. But if you look at this from the perspective of, hey, what is this actually going to do for clean energy or other aspects of uh, dealing with climate change, it actually turns out it's more than half full. Uh, The glass might even be three quarters full on a concrete measure like reductions of greenhouse gases uh, rather than feeling good or feeling bad. Uh, If you say, uh, how far does this legislation get America towards uh, President Biden's promised goal of trying to get to a reduction uh, by 2030 of roughly half in America's greenhouse gas emissions to be reduced from a baseline of 2005 by the year 2030? It turns out that this legislation, if fully implemented, would get most of the way there. It's actually quite impressive uh, how much more it would accomplish. Not everything. There still needs to be more done, uh, but it gets most of the way there. I think it's actually a big win for climate. So, Vijay, there are a few things that you said there that I want to ask you more about. One is just what are the mechanisms that would achieve that emissions reduction through 2030? How does this bill go about ramping up clean energy so that the emissions might be cut that quickly? So there are several areas uh, in which uh, the bill showers subsidies, basically, to kickstart investments in in decarbonization or low-carbon energy. But the short answer is a huge amount of money, all carrots, as it were. There are no sticks in the form of carbon pricing or mandated cuts uh, or caps in, in greenhouse gases, to be clear. And that's that's a fault that economists certainly would find in a bill like this. And certainly we, as the economist, who uh, we've long advocated for carbon pricing, uh, would and do criticize this approach. But 
without letting the ideal be the enemy of the good, what this bill does is put uh, something like $369 billion worth of subsidies, tax credits, I mean, a record amount, most ever in American history, uh, towards renewable energy, electric vehicles, tax credits, uh, encouraging so-called hydrogen hubs to encourage the development of uh, cleaner forms of uh, fuels like hydrogen and other, other future fuels, carbon capture and sequestration, which is a way of removing uh, greenhouse gases from the air and putting them safely, say, in the ground. So a variety of things, uh, really a, a blunderbuss approach. If you were to ask what's the single biggest area where this will have an impact, the answer is it's the power sector by encouraging rapid development of solar and wind in the next decade and other alternatives going forward. The new law would give 10 years of certainty on production and tax credits and so on for renewables. So can I ask you, Vijay, part of the politics of this was not just leaving out a carbon tax or leaving out cap and trade, leaving out those sticks, but also offering carrots not just to clean energy, but to dirty energy, to oil and gas. So how important are those provisions in your view? You know, that, that's gotten a lot of press. Um, and it's true that in order to keep Senator Joe Manchin, uh, who comes from a coal state, the, the linchpin Democrat who had held up this bill and ultimately became its savior, as it were, there was a, a tip of the hat towards uh, some pipelines that he was interested in getting approved, uh, as well as oil and gas concessions. But in fact, when you analyze the bill in great detail, what you find is overwhelmingly the benefits go to not oil and gas or other hydrocarbons uh, used in a dirty way. That is to say, th there's a massive greenhouse gas reduction as well as a uh, huge amount of money going towards low or no uh, carbon kinds of energy. So can I ask you then, if this is really, as you describe it, such good news for clean energy that it has a huge impact going forward on the deployment of renewables, that the concessions to the fossil fuel industry aren't so damaging. What does this do for America's credibility on the world stage? Historically, the world has gotten used to America saying that they will do something on climate and then not following through, either because Democrats can't get it done or because there's a change in administration. Do you think that this puts America on a different path or because Republicans are likely to retake Congress in November, and who knows what happens in 2024, is the rest of the world still kind of skeptical of America's role in the climate fight? The way that this bill has been structured with those concessions that were won by the moderates in the Democratic Party um, actually gives a much greater chance that any Republican Congress will not immediately start to try to undermine some of these provisions. The way that the tax credits have been done for wind and solar actually benefit the many wind and solar operators that are in red states, kind of states like uh, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, and, and in the Midwest, where there's a huge amount of renewable energy potential, are already leaders in these areas. And so they have domestic constituents in their uh, home base that are going to prevent, most likely, the Republicans from overturning something that benefits them. What that does when America goes overseas, as it will this November at, a, at the next big UN climate summit, rather than coming empty handed and trying to lecture poor countries to do more, what you end up is that now America actually has credibility. The world needs America to lead on climate. It always has needed that. But the America that turned up seems somehow morally bankrupt. We contributed more to the world's greenhouse gas emissions than any other economy, and yet we appear to be doing the least of any big economy. And that's not going to be true going forward. And I think that actually will have a dramatic impact, uh, perhaps create a virtuous cycle in which we begin to see more climate ambition with credibility.
Charlotte, from listening to Vijay, this sounds like really good news. Do you share his optimism? Yes, I think it's hard to go from the extreme nihilism that some have had when looking at the prospects for climate legislation and then adjust to the reality that something actually is getting done. I mean, it feels very strange in a good way. I think that what's really interesting strategically, and I think the Democrat strategy, not just on climate, but on drug pricing and some of the other provisions of the IRA, their strategy is pretty interesting. But here what you find is just an absolute abandonment of any idea that there would be sticks involved, no cap and trade. For so long, we were talking about cap and trade. We were talking about carbon tax. We were thinking about a clean energy standard, even different ways to try to force the energy system to change through pricing, either overt pricing or covert pricing. And here it turns out the answer to getting something done is just throw a lot of money at the problem, have some giveaways in terms of labor provisions, domestic content provisions that promote American manufacturing. This is all about trying to represent this transition as one that supports growth and supports jobs and doesn't punish anyone. Idris, I'm assuming that you share Charlotte and Vijay's optimism when it comes to the climate part of the IRA. I mean, it's not perfect. As Vijay said, we would have preferred a carbon tax, but it's pretty good if you believe the modelling, at least. So assuming you share that, I want to ask you about some of the other bits in there. What do you make of the prescription drugs piece that affects Medicare, or at least will, when it kicks in? And also, what about the tax changes that, that are part of this legislation? Both of these are modest but fairly significant, especially compared to the world we were in two or three weeks ago where we thought that absolutely zero was going to get done. So on the health front, there were some housekeeping measures like extending premium subsidies for people who get insurance through Obamacare that kind of need to be done, the boring but necessary work of government that uh, otherwise would have lapsed. Um, More significant is that at least in a few years, Medicare is going to start negotiating drug prices for a few high-cost drugs, which is something that they haven't done since 2003 when they started covering prescription drugs. And also, more importantly, it will limit the amount of spending that seniors have to do on on drugs out of their own pocket to $2,000 um, a year. It'll also cap for those seniors the amount that they have to spend on insulin, which will all be very popular. Uh, America won't be on the road to becoming the NHS as a result of this, but it's still fairly significant. And then on the corporate tax side, um, you know, when Democrats came to power, they had a lot of big ideas for this. They were going to reverse the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that Donald Trump signed into law. They were going to get rid of the carried interest loophole. They were going to raise the corporate tax rate. A lot of that got stripped out because Kirsten Cinema didn't want it. But the tax change that she could uh, countenance was this new minimum tax rate of 15% on book income. This minimum tax is really not the favorite of a lot of people because the tax code will have gotten more complicated, not less. But at the end of the day, it is still raising a lot of money from corporations. It is still saving the government a lot of money that it would have otherwise spent on prescription drugs. And it, and it's spending a lot of that money on reducing the deficit, all three of which are quite popular. 
Yes, the deficit part is an important bit of this, isn't it? I mean, this legislation, if you believe the modelling, ought to cut the federal budget deficit by $300 billion over the coming decade. And then on top of that, there should also be some savings from um, the Medicare piece on, on drugs purchasing. So that's pretty significant. And as Idris has noted before, though some economists are a bit sniffy about the value of deficit reduction, voters seem to like it and see it as a sign of sort of good housekeeping. I mean, I suppose one of the things that strikes me about this legislation is that the benefits of it, such as they are, won't be seen for a little while, right? I mean, the carbon dioxide emissions reduction, we're talking about making a big difference by 2030, which is good, but it's not immediate, it's not November. And when it comes to the changes, lowering the prices for prescription drugs for Medicare patients, that's not going to kick in until 2026. In terms of inflation reduction, it seems unlikely that this bill will do much very quickly. But maybe it doesn't need to. I mean, the inflation numbers for July seem to have held steady after June. So Idris, maybe it's enough for the Senate merely to pass an Inflation Reduction Act for the, for inflation to come down. Wouldn't it be great if it were that simple? It would, but it is still a much better name to market to voters than uh, whatever Build Back Better was. I don't agree with all of that, John, but I'll take you up on it in a few minutes. Okay, I look forward to that. We'll go back to another time when Democrats had to go it alone in Congress in a moment. But first, the usual reminder that an Economist subscription is well worth your time and excellent value for money to boot. With it, you'll be able to read, watch and listen to everything that we produce. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, members of the House and the Senate. In his first big speech to Congress as president in February 1993, Bill Clinton's priority was clear. For all the many tasks that require our attention, I believe tonight one calls on us to focus, to unite and to act, and that is our economy. The economy, stupid, had helped him defeat George Bush in the previous year's election. But now he was in power, it was his task, with the support of the legislature, to fix it. I did not seek this office to place blame. I come here tonight to accept responsibility, and I want you to accept responsibility with me. And if we do The budget deficit in the 1992 fiscal year was $290 billion, the largest dollar deficit ever. And it was projected to get worse. Clinton's budget aimed to balance the books with some tough medicine. This economic plan can't please everybody. If the package is picked apart, there'll be something that will anger each of us, won't please anybody. Tax increases and spending cuts were in order. When the budget reached Congress that summer as the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, or the catchier Deficit Reduction Act, it included $250 billion in spending cuts over five years. The top rate of income tax rose from 31% to nearly 40%. Clinton reckoned it was fair. There would be tax rises for the middle classes, breaking an election pledge, but the highest tax burden would fall on the richest. Republicans weren't on board. Good evening, I'm Bob Dole, the Senate Republican leader. And like nearly all Americans, I want President Clinton to succeed. The GOP was united in its opposition to President Clinton's budget, 
Not a single Republican in the House or Senate would vote for it. Now the president says the tax increases will only punish upper-income Americans as if that was something to celebrate. Well, he's wrong. Under his plan, millions of you who might think you were a member of the middle class would be paying more in taxes. It shouldn't have mattered. Democrats had control of the House and the Senate. And because it was a budget bill, it could be passed using the reconciliation process. The party only needed 50 Senate votes, rather than the 60 it would have taken to override a filibuster. With 56 Democratic senators, it should have been an easy win. But some Democrats were opposed too. The bill passed the House by a whisker, and six Senate Democrats had pledged to join the Republican caucus in voting no. 49 were in favour, meaning the outcome hinged on the one senator not yet to declare his hand, Vietnam War hero and Clinton's former rival in the Democratic presidential primary, Bob Kerry of Nebraska. Senate will come to order. And we'll begin with an invocation by our chapter. The vote was scheduled for Friday, August the 6th, the last day before the summer recess. Clinton had done his best to woo Kerry, inviting him to a private audience in the residence that morning and then calling him in the Senate cloakroom as the roll call neared. I see the distinguished senator from Nebraska has arrived in the chamber. At 8.30 p.m., Kerry took to the floor. Mr. President, uh, I've taken too long, I'm afraid, to reach this decision. My head, I confess, aches with all the thinking. But my heart uh, aches with the conclusion and that I will vote yes for a bill which challenges America too little because I do not trust what my colleagues on the other side of the aisle will do if I say no. With Kerry on side, the vote was tied 50-50, and Vice President Al Gore broke the deadlock. On this question, the yeas are 50, the nays are 50, the Senate being equally divided, the Vice President votes yes, and the conference report on the President's economic plan is passed. President. Clinton's budget passed. The Deficit Reduction Act was true to its name. The deficit went down every year, and in 1998, the government ran a surplus. Clinton's critics, however, would say that this was as much to do with the Republican Congress after 1994 and an improving economy. Politically, in the short term at least, the budget was a disaster for Democrats. The unpopularity of the tax increases was a big cause of the drubbing they received at the 1994 midterm elections. At the time, the Deficit Reduction Act was a rarity, a piece of important legislation that passed without any votes from one of the parties. The great legislation of the 20th century, civil rights, the Clean Air Act, Reagan's economic programmes, all had bipartisan support. In today's highly partisan politics, party line votes are far more common. If it were not for reconciliation, if a filibuster-proof 60 votes were needed to pass everything, far less would get done in Washington these days. Idris, a bunch of things struck me listening to that, but one of them was just when Senator Bob Dole, as leader of the Republicans in the Senate, said that, like most Americans, I want to see the president succeed. That just seems like an unimaginable statement, really, from from either party these days. Yeah, it's the exact opposite of Mitch McConnell saying his main job was to ensure that Barack Obama be a one-term president, um, which he famously said. 
you know, it's interesting thinking about about that and how reconciliation has been used more and more as basically a tool of of getting the party's agenda through without any other votes. And I think part of it is just that control of Congress flips much more often. There was a 40-year stretch between the 50s and the 1990s where Democrats were always in charge of the House of Representatives. And so there wasn't that incentive to just wait around for your turn in the majority and to obstruct until you did that, like there is today. So there's this tendency to try to ram everything through while you have the chance, because you never know what's going to happen next cycle. And there's the opposite tendency of your opponents to just uh, bunker down and, and try to wait you out. Yeah, I agree with all of that, Idris. One of the ideas I've been thinking about writing something longer on is that there's this real difference between the American Constitution as it's written down and taught school children and the American Constitution as it actually works in practice. And reconciliation is a really good example of this, right? Because nowadays it's very rare for senators for from one party to support legislation from the other party, and because it's virtually impossible, I'm not going to say completely impossible, but virtually impossible for one party to get 60 Senate seats, which would allow them to override a filibuster, what happens is that anything you know, vaguely controversial that the party with the majority in the Senate wants to do has to be done through reconciliation, which, as regular listeners will know, you only need 51 votes, so 50 votes plus the vice president as a tiebreaker to get things through via reconciliation. But reconciliation can only be applicable for spending bills, and also you only get one shot at it a year. And so the incentive is to stuff all sorts of things into this one piece of legislation, and then the person who really gets to decide uh, what stays in and what stays out is the Senate parliamentarian. It's a deeply, deeply weird system and really at odds with how things are meant to work. Charlotte, there's one aspect of this bill which we haven't talked about, which I know that you're interested in. For a very, very long time, Democrats have been keen on capping the prices of prescription drugs. I mean, we're talking decades, right? And that has always been thwarted, thanks to, it, it seemed, particularly effective lobbying by the pharmaceutical industry. That's changed this time. What gives? Yeah, it's a really interesting shift. And I think there are a few things behind it. One is actually the cover provided by Republicans. Trump was really keen on intervening in drug pricing in a way that a no prior American Republican president had been. The pharmaceutical lobby spent a lot of money tamping down support for restrictions on drug pricing on the right. But among the electorate, this is just really, really popular. If you look at polling of Americans on both the right and left, you see broad support of the different measures to limit the price of drugs. So it's not really a surprise that Democrats went for this. But I think part of why they were able to get support even within their own party is that those vulnerable Democrats in swing districts, this just isn't as contentious an issue anymore. It's not going to be the thing that sinks them. One question I have for both of you, actually, is just about the broader tactical issue here. So it used to be that when there was a big piece of legislation, people liked to talk about the importance of bipartisanship, that when you had something really important happening, uh, the Civil Rights Act, tax reform in 1986, Great Society stuff, welfare reform in the 90s, those were packages where you were able to bring members of both parties along. And I'm wondering whether the success here of a bill that actually does a lot 
with absolutely zero Republican votes and Kamala Harris being the deciding vote that enables the reconciliation bill to pass the Senate, whether the merits of bipartisan support for a big piece of legislation just aren't there. Actually, you don't need it. It's fine. If we're going to get anything done, just rely on one party to do it. What do you guys think? I I think unlike those past compromises, the parties have polarized much faster. And so there actually is genuinely little overlap that can result in those sorts of coalitions that we were talking about. The other thing is that reconciliation, I think, is a particularly bad vehicle for generating bipartisanship because of all the things that John was saying. You have an incentive to stuff everything that you want into that bill, which was indeed initially Biden's approach to doing it. That's why Build Back Better was stalled for so long. You know, that doesn't foreclose the possibility of bipartisan compromise. We've seen just in the last few weeks that um, they've managed to pass the CHIPS Act, which subsidizes semiconductor industry. They've managed to pass a modest gun control bill. um, And they've also managed to pass um, additional health benefits for veterans who are exposed to burn pits. And there's some areas of compromise. But I think that the the incentives for reconciliation just cause everyone to roll up their partisan priorities into one package. And whereas you might imagine Senator Mitt Romney going along with a child tax credit proposal that was negotiated with Democrats, he's not going to go along with increasing the corporate tax rate and all these other things. And so he's a no vote, even though he might be a a yes vote on on some parts of it. So uh, I think that that's part of what's going on here. That's fascinating. I mean, I was struck by a Brookings chart that I saw recently that showed just how giant laws have become, that as there are fewer things that have passed, the length of laws continues to grow as people jam stuff in. So this feels like it's mutually reinforcing by your explanation. You know, the only thing that the Senate comes together entirely for these days are things like they recently designated a particular day National Lobster Day, and that passed 100 to nil. But if you're trying to do something more controversial than that, then bipartisanship is just really hard these days. We'll be back in a moment to consider how popular the Inflation Reduction Act might be with voters. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Elliot Morris is our resident polling guru, and he's been in London this week to work on our soon-to-be-launched midterms model with our data editor, Dan Rosenheck. I stole him away from his coding for a few minutes to talk about whether Democrats' recent legislative successes can help them with the voters. We began by discussing Joe Biden's approval rating and how much of a factor that will be in the midterms. So as of August 10th, Joe Biden's approval rating in our bespoke average, which we're building for our election model, is 38%. That's a slight increase over the past couple of weeks, but it's very low still. He started at like 50%, so being a 38% is a pretty big indicator that something has gone wrong. 
And Elliot, when you're building your election forecast, you and Dan are building your election forecast, which we're going to unveil fairly soon. How important is presidential approval rating versus other things like the state of the economy? Well, presidential approval ratings are predictive of midterm results. When a president is unpopular, their party does poorly. Uh, The catch is when you have other polling data, when you have data asking uh, people how they're actually going to vote in the midterms, then approval rating is much less useful. So the real thing we want to look at here is the so-called generic ballot poll, which asks people how they're going to vote uh, for the House in November in their congressional district. And that is a lot rosier for Democrats. The Republican and Democratic parties are actually at about parity on the generic ballot, which is quite a stark contrast uh, to how voters feel about their president right now. Let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, which has now passed the Senate. It seems to have some good things in it from a policy perspective. The conventional wisdom here, I think, is this won't move the needle much in the midterms. I guess that's probably right. First of all, would you agree with that? (laughs) I do agree, yes. Yeah. Okay. But then second, there are various different things within it. There's a climate provision, which looks good news from the point of view of reducing carbon dioxide emissions in America. There's the prescription drugs caps, which won't kick in until 2026. There are various other things in there. What in that mix is popular and what is less popular? Because I think there are a lot of college-educated liberals uh, at The Economist. I say that liberal in the kind of small l liberal. So we're all excited about the climate bit. But I would imagine that from a pure polling perspective, that's probably not the thing that is going to get people most excited in November. I think you're right. In our polling with YouGov, who does a weekly survey for us, averaging over the last couple surveys, 30% of voters say the economy or inflation and prices is their most important issue. Um, but only 10% say healthcare, 9% for climate, um, and 6% for spending, which will have a you know, slight positive impact from the IRA. Uh, so, you know, if it's all good if these things are doing what progressives and what Joe Biden, you know, want uh, Congress to be doing on, on climate and health. But you have a big chunk of Americans who are really reacting to the top line economic conditions. Mm. Um, and really, frankly, you have even more Americans who aren't paying attention to that stuff and are just going to vote against Democrats because they're the party in power. Just to get back to a modeling question, how volatile is polling between August now when we're talking and November? I mean, how predictive are polls now or do they move around a whole load? I mean, I know you're not, I know it's not a pure polls model, but the polls are an important part of it. Well, without trying to reveal too much about our model, which is still sort of such a tease, you know, it's calculating and doing its, you know, arithmetic and algorithms on a computer somewhere in the Economist HQ in London, um, there is a lot of time left before the election to give you a sense of just how much things can change. Democrats were also at about 50% in the two-party vote at this point in 2010, a year in which they lost 63 House seats. So the political environment can move a lot. And then there can also just be residual error in how good this generic ballot is at predicting outcomes. Last question, Elliot. You're drinking an iced coffee as we're talking. Whenever I walk up to your desk in London at the moment, I see lines of code in various different colors. There's a lot of talk on your desk about a hackathon. What are you actually doing uh, you know, with your days and nights at the moment with all this code? And, and what do you have to do before you present it to the world? Well, both days and nights are spent <laughs> coding right now. Um, we're in the process of you know, combining 
different historical indicators to predict election results or really to predict how uncertain our predictions are. We want to know how reliable are generic ballot polls necessarily at predicting outcomes? What do we learn by studying special election outcomes, which look pretty good for Democrats? Um, and how much extra utility do you get compared to the generic ballot? So our computers have to run all these different calculations. They have to do it for every year. And we also have to make sure our models are sort of exploring the range of outcomes carefully, not being too overconfident or what we call overfit, but also not being too underfit or underconfident. Um, and that just really takes a lot of time for the computer to do its math. Uh, and we're making some pretty cool changes, which we're really excited to talk about soon. And if any of our listeners want a book to read over the summer vacation to understand the role of polls in American politics better, have you got any recommendations for them? <laughs> Am I allowed to plug my book? Totally. Oh, uh, okay. Um, well, I did just write this book called Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. It's actually out in America and the UK as of Friday. So Charlotte, Elliott's conclusion thus far is that even though there are some things to like about the Inflation Reduction Act, and we've talked about some of those already, it's unlikely to tip the balance either way, really, in the midterms. I think that's probably right. He knows much better than I do. I will say, though, that in terms of the signaling from the bill, I don't think it's all so distant. So yes, it's not until 2030 that these emissions will be reduced. But it's not even like in 2030, people will walk outside and breathe the air and say, oh, I notice there are fewer emissions. What they will notice, however, is that there's been an enormous surge in green investment that actually is going to start now in states where they live. So renewable projects that have been backed up are going to start moving forward. Um, there's going to be more investment that people see in their communities and that also is seen in the economy as a result of the climate provisions. On drug pricing, you know, I think prior to this, when you think about what political ads might have looked like in the run up to November, you have Republicans making various points about investigating the investigators, whether it's January 6th or now this new FBI stuff that gives them fodder. Democrats can say, we pass bills to lower your drug prices and your senator or the person running against me voted no. You know, that's much more substantive. So I I hear Elliot, I'm sure he's right, but I have to think on some qualitative metric that this isn't nothing. I, I think it's definitely good and will improve things in a lot of ways. But uh, it's also, if voters were so simple, then Obamacare would have made Eastern Kentucky blue and you know the exact opposite happened and biden has funneled fourteen hundred dollar checks at the start of his administration along with the child tax credit and you know that's not going to help him so i think it's good it'll, it'll help but I'm, I'm pessimistic that it'll uh it'll it'll change all that much i think where i'd agree with charlotte is that if you were a democratic candidate running this fall you would rather be talking about this stuff than not having this stuff to talk about. Whether it changes stuff overall, I'm I'm not sure. But there is something really interesting here, I think, which is that you know Joe Biden's approval rating is absolutely terrible, and I think all of us who've watched him you know, for a while kind of know why that is, right? He's not, I think, particularly good at the being a politician thing. He doesn't make good speeches. He's super old. He's not very charismatic, and all the rest of it. But if you look at the accomplishments of his administration, or at least you know, the things that have passed in Congress while he's been sat in the White House, 
the list is growing to be more impressive, really. I mean, you've got the CHIPS Act, which we mentioned already, a small gun safety uh, improvement through Congress. You've got the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, now the Inflation Reduction Act. I think on foreign policy, you know, clearly the withdrawal from Afghanistan hit his approval ratings. I'm a bit more sympathetic to the administration on that than some other people are, because I'm not sure there's a good way to, to lose a war, but we'll, we'll park that one for now. You know, on Ukraine, I think his policy has been correct and quite bold. You know, his administration, he gave the order to kill al-Zahawi. There's quite a lot there, Idris. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think the Republicans are perhaps not doing as well as they ought to be, given his, his low approval rating. Looking at uh, an election model from a from a rival publication, five thirty eight, uh, we've seen that their assessment of Democratic chances to actually keep the House have gone up uh, in the past month from thirteen percent to about twenty percent, and the Senate also is looking actually like Democrats might now be favored. It might be that that voters aren't that happy with Biden, but they also don't really love the alternative. It's an interesting summer for Joe Biden. I absolutely agree. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that there's still this hanging question of whether he's a one-term president. And so I think regardless of what happens in the next two years before he would leave if he does remain a one-term president, these are things that are, are, are not nothing. The chips bill, gun control, climate, I mean... It's not a historic presidency, but it's not a total flop. And so the big question is, you know, for him politically and for Democrats more broadly, we think we know what will happen in November. We'll see how accurate the models are, both ours and those of our competitors. Uh, you know, there's this huge question of whether he'll run again or who who will replace him. But I think when you view Joe Biden in the longer term, there was a, a real possibility that he was going to be an absolute dud, a one-term president who did literally nothing. And if you just look at the climate provisions, this is something Democrats have been talking about for a very long time, and these matter. Yep, I agree. That does now look like a possibility. And it's nice to have a week where we can talk about some good news coming out of Washington and Congress doing some stuff that we like for a change. Right, before I let you guys go, it's quiz time. The Economist wrote about Bob Kerry, the senator whose vote passed Bill Clinton's budget, when he was running for the 1992 Democratic presidential nomination. We noted that when Bruce Springsteen and John Cougar Mellencamp were played at his launch event, quote, his face had the same pained expression that your maiden aunt Mabel would have had if she had to listen to Guns N' Roses. Question. Before he was a senator, Kerry was the governor of Nebraska. What was notable about the two candidates vying to replace him after he stepped down in the 1986 election? This is a niche question, even by our standards. Hmm. Were they both cattle ranchers? Um, Maybe they played for the University of Nebraska-Lincoln on the football team? Maybe maybe they didn't go to the University of Nebraska because they're obsessed with uh, with being a Cornhusker in that state. Uh, this is really obscure. Were they women? They were indeed women. Ah, Adrees. Ah. <laughs> so annoyed. I'm so annoyed. It was the first time two women faced each other in a gubernatorial election. Republican Kay Orr beat Democrat Helen Busalis. 
I knew that. I was just I was just pretending like uh, Idris, you can retire uh, from the quiz yeah, for life now yeah, and just rest on that laurel. Question two. How many of the currently serving governors are women? Huh. That's a good one. You get extra points if you can name them all, or at least name a good number of them. Okay. Hochul in New York is one. K. Ivy in Alabama is two. We're going to be here a long time. Christy Noem, three. Michigan, Whitmer. Michigan, Whitmer. Oregon. Uh, I forget her name. Kate Brown. I'm just standing back. This is like watching. Oh, no, you got one already. You're contributing to this. Mm. Uh, New Mexico, right? Yep. Michelle Lujan Grisham. Okay. New Mexico. So how many is that? I think that gets you, if I'm, my count is correct, that gets you to seven. So you're doing pretty well. I'm going to go make myself some lunch. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> the ones I think you've missed are Kim Reynolds in Iowa. Okay. Janet Mills in Maine. And did we mention Kirsty Nome in South Dakota? Yeah. Yeah, you did. Yeah. So I think that's all. So the total is nine. So I think you guys got to seven, which is a good effort. Thank you um, for including me in you guys. Definitely. <laughs> it's an inclusive that podcast. Inclusion. That's hard. I don't know. That was good, Idris. Yeah, you did. You guys did well. <laughs> well, thanks, Idris. See you soon. Thank you very much. Charlotte, you have a great week too. Thanks. Bye, guys. If you just can't get enough of the midterms, our daily podcast, The Intelligence, co-hosted by our very own John Fasman, has just kicked off their midterm series. Part one was out this past Wednesday, looking at how Republicans are trying to win over Hispanic voters and featuring Idris. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble with research by Erica Shin. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive at economist.com slash checkspod. You can also get in touch with us via email. We love getting emails from you. The address for those is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.